Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, uh, I, now we just give you this time. Lord, we're here um, not because of any other reason, but because we want to worship you. And we do that through our lifting our voices in praise and worship and song. And Lord, we do that by opening up your word and asking you to speak to us and to guide us and direct us through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that now. Use this time. Use me, Lord, uh, to speak whatever it is that you have for us today, each and individually in our hearts, Lord, as we prepare them. Would you speak to us? We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, as we were singing that last song, I can't help to notice that, you know, attendance is a little light at the nine o'clock service, and that's okay. Because in that last song, the spirit was here. I don't know if, if any of you all felt it also, but hands were going up. People's hearts were turning. Whatever, maybe it was just in that moment, but hearts were turning to the Lord in that moment. And, and I just got like goosebumps over my whole body and thought, you know what, Lord, if you want to shake the walls today, if you want to lift the, the roof off of this building, if you could put it back perfectly when you're done, that would be great. <laughs> and he could do that. But Lord, I'm excited about today. Uh, I'm excited because we're here, we're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when we do that, he's in our midst. So, um, and there's plenty of spots for him to sit. So last week, one of the things that we talked about at the end of the chapter was this idea of not having two sets of measure. Remember that? And, uh, and pretty specifically, uh, Moses was telling them that when you go into the land, you are to be a people who are honest in your dealings with one another. Be honest. Don't have a set, uh, two sets of measure. The only purpose of two sets of measure in business was to cheat and be dishonest. That was the only purpose. There's no reason why you would have two weights that were marked one pound and neither one of them actually weighed a pound. There's no other reason except to cheat. And so he said, don't do that. When you go in, be honest and not only be honest, but be known for being honest. I sat with that passage this week um, and God said, you know, there's more application there. And, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. See, one of the, uh, the next application in this, more of a spiritual application into this two sets of measure is God said to me, do not have two sets of measure when it comes to measuring out your sin. When it comes to measuring out your sin. <clears throat> See, let's be honest. Don't we do that sometimes? Or we look at the sins in our lives and say, well, this isn't so bad. I mean, this is bad, but this isn't so bad. We measure our sin with differing measures. Okay, you might say, you know what, Pastor? Sometimes I may have an unkind word for a brother or a sister, but it's never to their face. It's always behind their back. As somehow that's better. I, mean, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I just want to cut them down a little to somebody else. Is that really so bad? I mean, I haven't murdered them. 
Now, obviously, gossip about someone isn't as bad as murdering them, right? And we measure it with different sets of measure. But Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, you've murdered them. And so Jesus says, here's the one set of measure, sin is sin. There isn't some sin that's greater or less in terms of measurement in our life. And when you think about it, who in here, by show of hands, would actually murder someone? Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> I thought, oh, just Sev. <laughs> just, and, uh, just keep, keep your eye on him, don't you? But see, but all of us have probably cut somebody down with our words on purpose. Now, if you consider that God is measuring out our sin with the same measure, and when we cut someone down with our words intentionally, and Jesus has already said, you, you, if you do that, you're hating your brother, and if you hate your brother in your heart, you're murdering them, and understanding that God looks at that and says, if you cut someone down, you're murdering them, wouldn't that cause you to stop a moment and say, maybe I ought to just take those words captive and not say that? Deirdre will often say to me or to our children, once we've said something like that, she'll say, are you trying to build them up or tear them down? It's like, you know, I have to hear those words in my head before they come out of my mouth and say, I'm going to take those. I'm going to measure those words as if I've got a cleaver in my hand. I'm hacking away at that person because I would never do that. I would never do that. But yet I have used words to cut somebody down because I do not measure with the same measure. There's more. Don't we also measure our own sin differently when we see it on somebody else? Don't our sins look way worse on somebody else, something we look at them and we see something that they've done and we're like, oh, man, that's bad. When we know, or maybe we haven't realized that we've done the same thing, but we measure it on them way worse. Let me give you an example because there's a good one in the Bible. There was this guy, maybe you heard of him, King David. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring when kings go to war, David stayed home. And one night he's up, he couldn't sleep, it says, and he went out onto the rooftop of his house and he looked down over the kingdom and there he saw this beautiful woman bathing. And he was like, whoa. And so he, he called somebody, he said, who's that? And they said, that woman, her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah. They actually say to him, that's the wife of Uriah. And David's like, hmm, bring her here to me. And he has Bathsheba come to him, and they end up sleeping together. And you find out later that when she goes home, she gets word to him and says, David, I'm pregnant. And David is like, Dah! now, this is what David does. Instead of David saying, you know what, let's just, let's just make this right. Get Uriah. Get, you know what, we're going to just deal with this. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to come clean. You know what David does is he's like, how can I cleverly cover this up? So he calls for Uriah. And now Uriah is a soldier in the army. And he calls Uriah back from the army. And he says, hey, Uriah, how's it going out there on the battle? Good? Everything good? Your boss good? And uh, Uriah's like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's, all, it's going great. He goes, you know what? 
since you're here, why don't you just, you know, don't rush on back tonight. Why don't you go on home to visit your wife? What's her name again? Well, Uriah, that dude is an honorable guy because he doesn't go home to his wife. Uriah goes out and he sleeps basically on the steps of the palace where all the other, you know, soldiers and people are. And so David finds out, because David was thinking, all right, this is what will happen. It's been a long time since he's seen his wife. So he's going to go home and he's going to be with his wife. And then she'll be pregnant and we won't have to say anything to anybody and it's all fixed, is what David is thinking. Uriah doesn't go home. He never goes home to his wife, actually. He sleeps, on the, he sleeps outside with all the other people. And, and so David calls him in after he finds this out the next morning. He says, Uriah, what, what are you doing? Why, why didn't you go home? And he was like, how could I go home? All of the other men that I fight with, all the other soldiers, all the other, they're all sleeping in tents or on the ground out on the battlefield. How could I come home and go and, and sleep in, in the comfort of my own bed and be with my wife? How could I do that? And, like, and David is just like, oh. So you know what David does? He apologizes. He makes things right. No, he doesn't. He has a big dinner party that he invites Uriah to, and he gets him drunk at his dinner party because he's like, for sure, now he'll go home to Bathsheba. Only he doesn't. He goes right out, sleeps on the steps again. And so now David is like, that's it. I, you know what? I tried. I tried to do the right thing is what David's thinking. <laughs> and so he calls to the, the, he writes a note to the leader of the army. And he says, when Uriah comes back, I want you to put him on the front line in a very heated battle and at just the right moment, I want everybody else to pull back so you leave Uriah hanging out there so that he's killed in battle. Rolls it up, hands it to Uriah to carry his own death sentence unknowingly to the commander of the army. And that's exactly what happens, is that the bat, they go into battle, they pull back, and they leave poor Uriah on the front line by himself, and he's killed in battle. And David is like, whoo there we go. Problem solved. And what he had done in secret was seen by God. But God sends a man named Nathan who is a prophet in the kingdom. I'm going to read this part to you. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is Nathan coming to David. And it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused, uh, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is the story that Nathan tells David. There was a guy, he had everything and a guy who had one lamb. And when a visitor came to the guy who had everything, instead of taking one of his own, he went and took the poor man's lamb. 
Verse five, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. David sees his sin on top of somebody else, is measured against somebody else, and he's enraged. Now, like just before this, didn't seem like that big of a deal what David had did to David, right? He was like pretty okay with it actually. But now he sees the same sin or it represented in this story and he's enraged and he says, that man should die and he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan looks at David in verse seven. He says, David, you are that man. You are that man. And the realization of everything comes crashing down on David, thankfully. And this is why God loved David. This is why God said, David is a man after my own heart. Not because he was sinless, but because when David was confronted with his sin, he repented of it. David would say, I have sinned against the Lord. And he would repent of it. But before that moment, David looked at the, his same sinful actions that somebody uh, uh, that Nathan was saying was somebody else, and he said, that person is bad, they're guilty. See, when we see our own sin, when we see sin on ourselves, we want mercy. But when we see our sin, the same sins that we do on someone else, we want justice. And God says, you do not have two differing sets of measure. When it comes to commerce, when it comes to your attitudes, when it comes to your own sin, Verse one. <laughs> you know what I love and what we've been seeing about and all throughout Deuteronomy here? I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but the, the, this, this is a phrase that I, I, I either heard someone say or I heard it or God pieced it together, but it says that God speaks to them in their present about their future as if it's their past. You get it? He speaks to them in their present about their future as if it's past. You know, only God can do that because he stands outside of time. He sees yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at the same time. How? I don't know. I don't know. But he does, and I believe it. I believe it. When he says that he is yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that he sees all things at all times, I don't have to understand how. I need only to believe that it is so, and I do. And I think I am in good company. I read this in Psalm 31, 14 and 15. David writes, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. David is saying, my past, my present, and my future are in your hands because you are in the past. You are in the present. You are in the future. You are here at all times. Only God can say that. Only God can hold all of your times in his hands. And I'm so thankful. And so David, when he realizes that, he says, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. And so they're being called to put their trust in the Lord. All of these instructions on how are they to act, how are they not to act, things that they're supposed to do, things they're not supposed to do, they haven't even gone into the promised land yet. It feels like right now we're never going to get into the promised land, but it's coming. 
And it says in verse one, and it shall be when you come into the land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it. You know, he's added that part. We've heard this before. As you come into the land that the Lord has given you to possess. But here in, verse, in chapter 26, verse one, he adds the, as an inheritance. A couple of things struck me even this morning when I was looking at that is remember last week we talked about the importance of the inheritance of passing land from, from family member to family member. It was a way of connecting families together or family lines. But also this was a promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to give this land to the people as an inheritance. They, they haven't owned it yet. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't own it either. But God is saying, but it's mine, and you're my children. And so when you get it, it's an inheritance that I'm passing down to you. He says that you shall take some of the first fruit of, excuse me, some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring forth from your land that, you're, that the Lord your God is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord God chooses to make his name abide. There's so much in that verse, actually. I'm, I'm probably not gonna hit it all. I keep coming back to this place where he says, to the place that the Lord chooses. So where, where is it that, the, that we go to worship God? Where is it? Where he chooses. We come to this church to worship God because I... I totally believe that God chose this place for us. We looked at a lot of places. Dan and I, Sarah, um, we looked at a lot of places and it took a long time. And we went to many places that looked really cool or there was even one place where like, this is it, could see it. I could see that and this and those and, and, and seats and stage and rooms. I could see all of it. And then God was like, nope, no, not this place, not that place not this place. And we walked into this place. And I don't know if anybody here, except for me and Dan saw it, some of you saw this before it looked like this. And we came in and we kind of looked at this and we're like, I think this is it. I think this is the place that God chose for us. And so we come here. But here's the important part. To them, and to us and to everyone who goes to worship God, it's at the place that he chooses. It's about him and what he chooses, that they were to go. And they said, when you go into the land, you're going to take that, the first produce of the land, whatever the land produces. You know, they weren't farmers. I don't know if you know this or not. They've just been wandering around for the last 40 years. They're not farmers. Even in Egypt, they were sheep herders. They're not farmers. So he says, when you go into the land, whatever comes up from the ground, whatever is produced from the ground, first you give back to me. I don't know if any of you are farmers or garden type people who plant things, but we take that for granted. Don't we kind of take that for granted? You go into the supermarket and there's just like, you know, peppers and carrots and celery and apples and things like that. And you're just like, oh, I'm taking some of that and some of that and some of that. Um, I kind of take for granted that the fact that where does that come from? Like, do you ever think about produce? What do we do to make produce happen? Like almost nothing. You take seeds, you put them in the ground, you cover it up and then stuff grows up. And from that stuff, food grows off of that. And how much do we really have to do with it? And how much is that is really God's miracle? Like mostly 
God's miracle. I guess we have to put the seeds in. But even then, you could go, like where I grew up, you could just walk out into this field behind my house in the summertime, and there'd be like raspberries and strawberries, and nobody planted those. They just were there because God says, this is a miracle that I do. And so you see what God is saying is, this, what you're giving to me, none of what you're giving to me is anything that you've actually done, but you're going to collect it up in baskets and you're going to bring it to me. You're going to actually give me back what I gave you. You're going to bring it to me in baskets, the first produce of the land. And they were going to bring it to the priest. You know what? I, th- I have to ask myself when I read this, what did they do with all of that? What did they do with that? Look at him, verse four. He says, you're going to uh, bring this in baskets to the priest. And the priest is going to take it and he's going to sit down. We're going to get into this for a minute. But when I read that, I'm like, what then, then what? what? I mean, what did that priest do with like the basket upon basket upon basket of like fruits and vegetables? You know what? I think the only thing that I can think of is there must have been a ladies retreat the next day. <laughs> and they were just collecting up the salads and things that they were all going to eat. God asks for what he gave them back, not because he needed it. It's not because he's up in heaven and he's like, man, we're almost out of green peppers. It was because it was an act of worship on their part. He was saying, what I've given you, you're giving back to me, the first of it. You're giving back to me because it is an act of worship to say, oh, this is the best. It's the first. And God's like, okay, give it to me. An act of worship. I don't even know if God eats vegetables, but he clearly likes them. He must. He must love vegetables. And it says, look at verse three, and you shall go to the priest who is in those days. This was a verse that God kind of went and and smacked me with because he said, I want you to look at this. And basically, here's a paraphrase. Take it to whoever happens to be in office at that time. And what God said to me was, because it is not about the priest, take your offering to whoever is the priest at that time, not by name. The office is just the office that's filled, but whoever is filling that office is actually a tool of mine. Go. It's not about the offering, actually. It's not about the priest who's in that position. It is about your conditioned heart that says, I'm going to go and worship God in the way that he has told me to do it. That's it. And, and you, you are to say to the priest, I declare today that the Lord your God, that t- today to the Lord your God, that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to give to our fathers. And then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand, set it down before the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there few in number, And there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous. You know what he's talking about is Jacob. When Jacob was in the land and Joseph, if you remember, there's a lot here. Joseph, remember Joseph in the, you know, fancy coat, that Joseph, you know, and his brother sold him into slavery and ended up going to Egypt and eventually um, made such an impression on the Pharaoh in Egypt that Pharaoh made him second in command only to himself in power. And then there was a great famine in the land and Jacob and his uh, other 11 sons were all starving and they ended up basically after, you know, 
that whole story in Joseph where they came and discovered that it was him in charge. He had them, the whole family, all 70 members of the family come to live in Egypt. And that's what this is talking about. He was saying that Jacob was a traveler, a nomad in the land, um, that he was about to perish. They were going to starve to death. And God said, now it's time for you to go in because I have promised you that you're going to become a great nation. I promised your father and your father before him that I was going to make a great nation of a mighty uh, number of people from you. It's time for you to take the 70, the, the few in number into Egypt where you are going to grow and prosper. Remember, they went into Egypt and they were in the land of Goshen and they took over the job of sheep herder because the, the Egyptians hated sheep herders and they didn't want that job and they prospered and they grew and they prospered and they grew and in fact they prospered and grew so much that there were so many of them that it says if you read that the pharaoh who was then in charge who didn't know joseph and didn't know any of the history of the family just looked at this huge number of jews and was like there's so many of them they're going to overtake us what we need to do is let's enslave them so that we can control that population. In fact, what happened was the, the enslaving and trying to control the population caused the population to, to grow even more until we see in Exodus when they leave that they're nearly 3 million people approximately. So they went from 70 to 3 million in 400 years. If you were here with us in Exodus, we did the math on that's like exceptional growth. I'm not sure how that was happening with all the work that they were having to do, but yet, supernaturally, God grew them. And that's what he's talking about right here. But it says in verse 6, but the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. And that's where the Pharaoh said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to enslave them. Instead of work with them, they're going to work for us. And then it says in verse 7 that we cried out to the Lord God, our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand with an outstretched arm. How many times have you heard that saying, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? You ever really thought about what that means? A mighty hand and an outstretched arm? The mighty hand, I think we get. The mighty hand, God is mighty. God did get them out of Egypt in a miraculous way. With his might, he defeated the army. He split the sea. He split the sea and then defeated the army that, you know, that way. And, and he, he did m miracles and signs and wonders and things. But what's the outstretched arm? Did you ever think about that? I looked it up. I looked it up to see what other people thought about this. And every single case I found that the outstretched arm is talking about the sovereignty of God. So yes, we understand God is mighty because we could see it on display. In the story of Exodus, we could see the mighty hand of God through his wonders, but it is the sovereignty of God that he loops in there at the end, the mighty hand and the sovereignty of God. God's saying, I'm not just mighty, I'm above all things. I'm God and God alone. He'll say, there is no other God but me. I am sovereign. In fact, what they were, what they were saying here was like, Look, it was because of our affliction and crying out to God that he saved us. But we know that God had a plan that was beyond Egypt, right? We knew that God's plan meant for them to leave Egypt and go into the promised land, which they haven't even done yet by this time in Deuteronomy, but they're getting there, right? But this is what God, that, this, is, this is what I believe God was saying also at the same time was, you are so comfortable in this land of Goshen that you will never leave here 
unless I make it uncomfortable for you. And so in his sovereignty, God uses the affliction of bondage from Egypt to make their situation increasingly uncomfortable so that when he said, it's time to leave, they were like, yes, let's go. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our lives, in our jobs, in our situations that God is calling us away and we are trying, and we're not, we're not hearing it because we're like, I'm good right here. I'm good. I've got everything figured out. It's all good. I've got a good job. Everything's going great. My house is this. My cars are running. Everything's good. I've got lots of friends. I've got a great church. Everything is terrific. That God is calling you away. Do you know what? Actually, you can look back on, I mean, I look back on my life and, and you know, we, we had things were going along pretty good up there in New York, you know, we had, you know, house and jobs and church. We were very involved in our church and we thought we'll never leave. We're never going to leave. It's all going good. It's all going great. And then God said, except I'm going to move your church away way to the north end of the county, way far away. And, and uh, also, um, I'm going to have your mother-in-law live with you. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kept layering, layering on the uncomfortable until we were like, we're out. We have to go. We have to go. And we have to go to where God is calling us, which was Florida. Just as hot as the desert outside of Egypt, <clears throat> less dry. Honestly, we didn't really know why we were coming here, and, and it, didn't, it wasn't abundantly clear when we got here why we were here. But look where we are. <laughs> look where we are. I would have never dreamed this, the place that God chose for us. Amen? So it says, he has brought us, in verse 9, he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I do love that phrase. You hear it so often, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we've talked about it before. It's a land flowing with milk, the thing that we need to be provided to survive, and honey, all the things that make life sweet. I love that God says, I'm going to give you provision for what you need, and I'm going to add a little sweetener as well. Not the real stuff, not Splenda, the real stuff. Milk and honey. When you hear milk and honey, just think of those things, the things I need, God gives us, but then he sweetens it a little bit too. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, our Lord, have given me, and then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you understand that verse five all the way to verse 10, what we just read, they were to bring their basket of fruits and vegetables or whatever it is and say this out loud to the priest, but they weren't really saying it to the priest. They were saying it out loud. They were proclaiming how great God is out loud. Now, was that so that God could hear them? No, you don't have to say anything out loud for God to hear you. It was so that they could hear it. God doesn't need to be reminded how great and mighty and awesome he is. God knows how great and mighty and awesome is. He knows everything. But we, he says, I want you to say this out loud so that you hear yourself saying these things out loud. Do you ever worship God out loud? Do you ever pray out loud? Do you ever read the word? Do you walk around your house and just talk to God out loud? Do you ever do that? I suggest it. 
I suggest that you spend some time sometimes reading God's word out loud. I get to do it all the time because I'm talking all the time. And I can tell you what, when I'm here preparing for this, I walk all around the place with my stick, mostly because I'm here by myself. But I talk out loud to God all the time. Anybody that comes in here is like, oh, I'm going to that church. That, that pastor's crazy. He's talking to himself, but I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to God out loud, and it's amazing. You can read God's word out loud, pray out loud. Now, it doesn't have to be all the time, but sometimes God wants us to say it out loud because when you hear yourself say it out loud, it makes a difference than when you just read. Plus, I'll tell you what, you get a lot less distracted when you're reading or talking to God out loud. Sometimes when you read or pray quietly, don't you sometimes get distracted by, you know, like a squirrel? <laughs> She's like, Lord, <laughs> do you know that the corners of your eyes see things, see movement like magnified more than the fronts of your eyes? Has anybody ever hear that before? That's why people think they see ghosts and things like that out of the corner of their eye because the corners of your eyes magnify movement. So when you're sitting here and you think you're like, what's that? I saw something. I swear I saw something over there. It could have been a leaf moving, but your eye has magnified it out of the corner of your eye. That's why we're so easily distracted. That's why they put, you know, blinders on horses, right? So that they're not distracted. Because their eyeballs are huge if you've ever seen them. Uh, that was for free. <clears throat> so verse 11, after you've done all this, you've brought it, you, you, you've, you've said all these things, you've made this confirmation out loud to God, to, to yourself, not necessarily to God. In verse 11 it says, so you shall rejoice. This is a happy occasion. This isn't drudgery. This isn't bad. Later on, and we're not going to probably get there today, but in, in chapter 28, they're going to talk about the curses and the blessings, the things that happen if you, if you don't follow God's word and the things that happen when you do follow God's words. And here's the crazy part. It's like, if you follow God's words there are, and commands, there are blessings, but you have to remember that the things that God commands us to do, they're not hardships. They're blessings in and among themselves. When he says, don't lie to one another, don't kill each other, don't uh, um, worship false gods, none of these things are bad. He's going to say, don't have sex with animals. Those are all good things. These are all blessings. All, if we only just did the things that God calls us to do. Those are blessings in them, but then he attaches amazing blessings to those as well. And we'll get to that probably next week. <clears throat> rejoice, he says, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house and you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. And when you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, remember we talked about that if in Deuteronomy chapter 14, there was the annual tithe, but then every third year there was an additional tithe that they would keep in their city so that they would give every third year to the Levite, to the stranger, to the widow, to the fatherless. That's what he's talking about right there. <clears throat> the, the year of tithing and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, to the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, 
nor given any of it to the dead. All of those in verse 14 are all pagan practices, by the way. They're saying, I haven't used any of the offering to you in any way that is inconsistent with what it is you've told me to do. I've not offered any of it to any pagan God. In fact, you can go to some other countries, and I believe it's India, where the people are literally starving, but they'll take food offerings and lay it at the graves of deceased people, and, the, and they're not allowed to touch it, and the, and the food is sitting there literally rotting because well, there's no one there. There's no dead, dead ancestor who's coming and, and eating the peaches that you left behind. They're rotting away, and yet the people are starving with nothing to eat, but they can't touch that food because it's been given to the dead. God says, don't do that. Don't, don't give any of your offering, your food offerings or anything to the, to the dead. Don't do anything um, unclean with it. And then they are to say, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. And verse 15 says, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. I just love that first phrase, look down from your holy habitation from heaven. Um, that they're calling out to God and saying, look down on us, hear us. And guess what? He does. There's this, like, some people think that, like, God is so far away. Like, he, he lives in the, like, outer realms of the universe, And that's just where he's at. And that somehow, like, there's almost this idea that God, um, God's creation is like this big, elaborate domino display where he set the whole thing up and then he kind of just stood back and went, click. And it's like, and he just watches it all happen rather than be intimately involved because he's way off in the, in the outer realms of the universe rather than being intimately involved. But God is here. His, he, they, at any moment, they could say, look down from your holy habitation. In fact, in Psalm 116, I love this verse. Psalm 116, it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. And it's like it's saying, when I call out to God in, in prayer and supplication, it says that he inclines his ear. It's like he, he's, he's like up doing whatever God's doing. Like, I don't know what God does up there. He's doing everything all at one time. So whatever motion that is. And then you say, Lord, help me. It says that he goes, oh and inclines his ear. Just like he leans in to hear. He's not not in some outer realm of the universe, but he inclines his ear to hear. Oh, man. Does that give you a new understanding of prayer? That we're not putting a message in a bottle and tossing it out into the ocean and being like, I hope somebody finds that but that God literally is inclining his ear to hear your prayer, your supplication. I don't know who wrote this Psalm 116. It doesn't say, sounds like David to me, though. Sounds like David. This day, the Lord your God commands you, verse 16, to observe the statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. And really, that is what he is getting to right here. Not with all of your actions or motions or, you know, robotic gestures, but are you doing this with all of your heart 
and with all of your soul. Today, he said, today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his judgments and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. You see what verse 17 says? You declare that he is your God. He declares that you are his people. Proclaims is actually the word. You proclaim it, that I am God's. He belong, I belong to him. And he then responds, you are mine. A special people, it says in my version. But in Hebrew, it says a treasured possession. When you declare that God is your God, he declares that you are his special possession. That means we are owned by God. Now, uh, somebody said on, the, on the, in the, the Wednesday night class that if we're his possession, that means we're his slave. And I was like, oh, well, okay. I, I mean, I kind of see what you mean, but God doesn't look at it like that in, the, in that sense. God looks at us as a special or a treasured possession. Yes, we were bought and paid for by God, but not so that we could be like a slave, but so that we are a treasured possession. Think about something in your life that you paid dearly for. And someone comes over to your house and you're like, do you see this? See this right here? It's pretty cool, right? There's only like three made in the whole world, like only three. Yeah, I paid like a bajillion dollars for it, but look at it. Look, don't touch it, but look at it. You like it? Because we treasured that thing that we paid dearly for. It's a treasured possession. It's not like we would pay a bajillion dollars for something and then like open up a drawer and throw it in or kick it around or keep it in the garage where it's a thousand degrees. We treasure it. We hold it high. Look what the next verse says that he will set you high above all nations. See, you are a treasured possession so that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Are you, do you consider yourself a treasured possession of God's because you've proclaimed him to be your God? Embrace it. Now, We'll keep going a little bit. Now Moses with the elders of Israel command the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. In fact, if you, uh, you know, most people think that he's talking about two big stones, but if you read in Joshua, he actually tells each elder of the tribe to go out and get a big stone. So it's very likely that he's talking about 12 big stones, one for each tribe, meaning that the words would be written on these stones and they would be for every single person. Every tribe was to have a stone with the words written on it. You know, he also tells, it also says, and this is just worth talking about. Once they cross over the Jordan River, God, God says to Joshua to go in and Joshua takes 12 additional stones and he creates a, 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 a pile of stones, a column of stones in the middle of the Jordan River, which still is, by the way, split, right? When he told them to cross down and the priests went down with the ark and they, they, they walked down to the, the Jordan and they put their foot in. And as they do that, God stops the water so that they can, but then, then the priests and the ark, they all had to stand in the middle of the Jordan River while all the people crossed over. And so then Joshua goes, he takes 12 stones and he puts them in a pile in the middle of the dried up 
River, and then the priests leave, and the water comes rushing back in. But you know, the Jordan River is seasonal, so it rises and falls with the amount of rain. And so there would be some times of year, right when they were actually crossing, where it would be overflowing its banks because of the amount of rain. But there would be some times when the, there would be no rain, and the river would be very low. Well, you know what? When the water was really, really high, and it was really flowing, and there was a lot of life, you couldn't see the stones. There was no reminder there. Um, what God had done. But when there was a drought and there was very little water, then the reminder of what God had done and how he had provided was clearly visible to all who saw it. And isn't that the way life works? Isn't it in those times of drought and dryness and the lack of any kind of life that we most desperately need the reminder of the provision of our Heavenly Father, right? Right? That is, isn't that just so cool? Do I say that a lot? So cool. <clears throat> he says, you're going to take these stones, you're going to whitewash them, and then you shall write on them all the words of the law when you have crossed over that you may enter the law land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God your fathers promised you. And therefore, it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You know, he tells them to build an altar, but he doesn't want them to use any tools to carve or shape the stones in any way. He's saying to them, I'm going to give you the stones right here. He's going to say, you shall build it with whole stones, the altar of the Lord your God. He's going to say, I want you to use the stones that I've already formed for this altar because I don't want anybody walking away from this altar looking at going... See that altar? See that coving right there? I totally did that. It's not about the person who created the altar. He doesn't want it to be. In fact, he does want it to be about the one who created the altar because God formed the stones. He says, use whole stones. Use the stones that I've already formed and build the altar because it's not about your handiwork. It's about mine, God says. And he goes, you're going to offer a burnt offering on it to the Lord your God. Do you know what burnt offering is um, in the Bible specifically? When they do a burnt offering, the burnt offering is an offering of consecration. Right? And what that means is that when they would put something on the altar and then they would burn it, everything would be consumed. There would be nothing left Everything was consumed in that offering. And it is a picture of you and I offering up our lives to God and saying, take all of it. There should be nothing held back, nothing remaining. Take all of it. it is a, I am giving myself as a consecra consecration. I'm offering all. Are you doing that? Have you offered God all or have you offered him this part? But when you leave today, the rest of it is yours. You've held it all back. So the, he says, I want an offering, a burnt offering, an offering of consecration when you come into the land. And we know, and I've said this before, that the, the promised land to the Christian is not heaven, but it is now the promised walk, the Christian walk, the time between when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and when we go on to heaven, that is our promised land. And sometimes there are battles and sometimes there are hills, but you need to enter that land with a consecration offering saying, Lord, take all of me. Let me hold nothing back. Let it all be consumed by you. And then look what comes next. 
You shall offer a peace offering, and you shall eat it there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And so the next offering that they were supposed, after they offered a consecration offering, after they offered them up themselves completely, then God said, then let's enter into a peace offering, which was like a meal offering, which was like they were sitting down symbolically to have a meal, to share in a meal with God. So he says, once you've offered me your whole everything, let's commune together in a peace offering. And we will rejoice at that. This isn't a bad thing. It's not a hardship. God doesn't want horrible, bad things for you. He wants great things, but they're his things. And it says, and you shall write plainly, On the stones, all the words of this law. And then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have come before the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Essachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. Basically, he's saying when you get over there, there's going to be two mountains. We've talked about these mountains before, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and there's a valley in between. And what they were supposed to do was each representative of those tribes was supposed to go onto the assigned hill that they were just told. And then the people and the Levites and the priests would stand in the valley. And what they're going to do is he's going to go through these and he's going to announce these curses. And then all the people in the valley would yell out, amen, in agreement. But you know what? I think we're going to stop there so that we can really look at that next week. Because it's a great way, because the compare and contrast between the, the curses and in chapter 28, the blessings. The curses and the blessings. So let's just wrap it there. I'm over time anyway. Uh, and uh, we'll just thank God now for this word this morning. So Lord, we do thank you so much for this word that you've given to us. Lord, we, Lord, we are so thankful. I'm so thankful. I'm all, I only speak for myself. I'm so thankful, Lord, for your word. Uh, I'm thankful for your son that you sent to die on the cross for my sins, Lord. Lord, forgive me for, for using two sets of measure when it comes to my sin. Oh, Lord, let me cling to, let me cling to you. Lord, bring to mind the things that I'm holding back and not placing on the altar for a burnt offering. Lord, so that it all might be burnt in consecration and offered up to you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, so much. I thank you for hearing and inclining your ear when I reach out in prayer. Thank you for loving me so dearly. I love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.